Good morning. Uh, good to see all of you that are here, uh, seven, eight of us today. We sure do miss you and um, are looking forward to when we get back to being in this sanctuary together. Uh, we're moving on through this season of Lent. It's a time of repentance and reflection. Um, today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Last week we looked at the, the book of Lamentations, kind of right in the middle there, especially chapter 3. And I, I, I reminded us, tried to remind us, the text says that, that in Lamentations we're called to be honest in our prayers to God. We're, we're to trust in His character in the middle of the struggle. And, and last of all, we're to let the waiting do its work. That sometimes it's this long uh, drawn-out process of waiting that actually shapes us. Well, this week, if you've been reading along with the lectionary, we're back in the book of Jeremiah. Last week was looking back at the experience of the exile and the fall of Jerusalem. This text actually takes a step back uh, to be earlier. And chapter 29 contains a letter from Jeremiah sent to the exiles in Babylon. And, and you've got to understand what leads up to the letter what leads to this letter? Uh, it's found back in 2 Kings 24 and 25. And, and I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter with advice from a friend, but Jeremiah is writing a letter to people that are already in exile, even before Jerusalem falls. And they've, they've, I'm sure they've got lots of questions about how things are going back home. And his letter is not exactly just the newsy update that you might expect. You see, to, to get the backstory to the letter we're going to read today, you have to understand that it comes after the first wave of exile. Actually, I should have said after the first two waves, but it's too late now. It's in the outline. Anyway, uh, scholars tell us there were three waves. In 605 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he became king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. He took a bunch of Jews, the, the leaders, the artists, the, 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 the upper echelons of society, took them back to Babylon. Daniel was in this group with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, they all went to Babylon in 605 B.C. What happened just before this letter in 597 was a second wave. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came. He installed a king named Jehoiachin as kind of his puppet leader. And it says he carried off 10,000 of the best back to Babylon. And the, the, the 2 Kings 24, 14 says he carried all Jerusalem into exile. It's funny that the important people were considered all Jerusalem. All the officers and fighting men, all the skilled workers and the artisans, a total of 10,000. So it wasn't everybody, but it says only the poorest people of the land were left. And, the, and so you've got this huge contingent of Jews living in Babylon and, and the question that begins to surface in their mind, whether they say it out loud or not, is why us and why not them? It continues in 2 Kings 24. Uh, it says, Nebuchadnezzar made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place. He changed his name to Zedekiah. So he sets up another king. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. She, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. But the question is, during this 11 years between the second wave of the exile and the fall of Jerusalem, why did they get to stay at home? I mean, the people in Babylon didn't realize that Jerusalem ultimately was going to fall. They didn't realize that it would only be 11 years until the other people came. How long till we get back? Is there any chance that hope will come soon? And so Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles in Babylon from his home in Jerusalem. 
to the people who've been carried away in the first two waves. Now, uh, Alicia Murphy is going to read uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 23, so we can hear the text of the letter. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 23. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declared the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. 
For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbours' wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorise. I know it, and I'm a witness to it, declares the Lord. Thanks, Alicia. Alicia accused me of having her read that passage because I couldn't pronounce the names in it. And I will neither confirm or deny that accusation, but she did a great job reading it. Thank you very much. Um, we, we actually need to settle in and, and read the letter to make sure we hear what Jeremiah is communicating, what the letter actually says. It's, it's not the, the kind of letter you would expect, but it's very directive. He's, he's used to conveying a message to the people from Yahweh, and this letter is no exception. Now, like I say, the content, uh, the content of the letter is, is challenging. It's, it's different. It's not just news from home. And the first thing that would have hit them like a, like a kick in the gut was this. God has done this. In verse 4, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Ouch. God's saying you're there because I carried you there. Last week we talked about lament and the honesty that's a part of that process of lamenting. Well, this is honest. They were having to acknowledge we are here because God has done this. And it strips away all our preconceived notions about our conditions. We can't blame others. We can't find our own way back. Uh, you know, it's, it's, this honesty is important as a starting point. I, I don't know about you. I, I have this condition. Uh, it's called testosterone, and it makes me not want to ask for directions when I'm lost. Um, and, and it's very hard for me to stop and say, I don't know where I am. Can you tell me how to get to where I'm going? Uh, phones and Google Maps and all has really kind of helped me with that. But, but the point is, until you know the truth about where you are, you do not know where to go to get away from there. The beauty of, of the honest is that even when the truth is difficult, we, at least we know where we are. And that's where this starts. The Lord's brought you here. And sometimes we hold so tightly to what we want to believe, to where we're trying to go, that we refuse to even admit the truth about where we are. I was reading a devotional this week written by Richard Rohr, and he's talking about Paul. You know, Paul uses this phrase of being fools for Christ. And Richard Rohr says, these fools, they alone can trust and live in the new work of God because they're not protecting the past by control, which he says are conservatives, or reacting against the past by fixing, which he calls liberals. Both of these groups, get this, are too invested in their own understanding to let go and let God do something new on earth. And see, very often that's where we end up. We're, we're holding so tightly to what we want to believe that we, we're not honest enough to let go. And, and the first Part of this letter says the truth is you're there because God sent you there. We tend to react in ways that want to control instead of surrender. And honesty requires surrender. First step in the 12 steps of AA, uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's that gut-wrenching honesty that gives you a place to start. And that Lent is this confession and repentance, this period of time which is just ruthless honesty about your own life. This is where I am. This is, this is the truth about me. See, the painful truth for them is that God's led them there. It's difficult, 
but it's true. And even in that, it's a place to start from. And then the advice that God gives is not what they were expecting. He says, settle in, live life, and seek peace. They've got to get in their heads and in their context. They've been taken from their homes. They've been placed in a different culture. They've lost everything. They've, they, their way of life has completely changed a little radically more than we've experienced here by the changes in our life from COVID. They've been actually uprooted and taken away. And, and they have friends still back in Jerusalem. And they want to go back. They don't want to give up hope. But, but doing these things, settling in, living life, seeking peace, it's just tangibly admitting defeat. It's giving up hope of returning. Building houses takes time. Planting a garden means you're going to be around to harvest it. Marrying and having children and letting your children get married. That, that's, that's a whole different mindset. And even more than that, pray for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. Really? This, this pagan city? Pray for peace for this place? Pray for prosperity? He asked them to stop looking for the next best thing. To stop looking for their ticket home. Settle in. Be where you are. And so many times that longing for, for things to get better occupies so much of our mind that we never actually live where we are. And he expands this by saying, be content in your circumstance. Don't keep looking for a way out. I love the last half of, of verse 8. Do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. Don't, there's people that are telling you things that you want to hear. You're, you're feeding this monster of, of we're going home. You know, we do that all the time. We look to faith and religion to paint a, a picture of the future that's better. And there is a better picture of the future, right? But far too often we get so fixated on that future that we refuse to live in the present. Now, don't get me wrong. I love to sing, I'll fly away. Phoebe starts playing the banjo and the worship team's going. I'm, my foot's patting. My southern roots are coming out. I love that. But I've got to remember as I rejoice that one day I can fly away, that until I fly away, I'm still here. I've got to live here. And we can often long for the change so much that we lose the ability to be in the present. It's like spending all the money that you have right now on a lottery ticket, hoping that the, the future's coming true instead of actually living faithfully. In the moment, God says, I took you there, so be there. Stop using the prophets to get away from where I brought you, even if it's only a mental diversion. Be content. But, but what can we be content about, God? You've taken us here. We're, we're far away from home. We, we want to go home. How, how can we be content? And Jeremiah goes on to say in verses 10 to 14, God has the bigger details in hand. Now, this section between verse 10 and 14 is probably one of the most referred to sections from the book of Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, and you'll seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. How many of you have seen those on greeting cards or written those at the bottom of an email or a letter? But it sounds a bit different when you realize the context, right? God's just told them to settle in. He's going to say, okay, when 70 years are completed, I'll bring you home. Right? That, that's, that's a long time. If I said to, to all of you, uh, guess what? The church has come into some money. We've been left a huge bequeathment. And what we want to do is, is 
basically pay off every mortgage of every person that's a part of our church. Some of you would go this afternoon and buy a house. I know that's what you would do, right? But then if I said, and we're going to do that, we're going to pay off every single mortgage in 70 years, right? What good is that? I'm going to pay off my own mortgage in 70 years. Nobody's going to wait for the money that long. And, and, and saying to these people, I have these plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future in 70 years, right? Most of them will be dead in 70 years. When you read those promises in that context, I know the plans I have for you, a hope and a future. You'll seek me, you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. But when you read them in the context of that, they don't look as good as they do on Pinterest in a nice little artistic piece or, you know, a, a meme. They feel different. What if the waiting goes on longer than you do? Can we trust that God is still good and that he's still good to us even if if the plans that he has to give us a hope and a future we may never physically see in our own lifetime? It's a challenge, but it adds depth to these promises. It adds something to them that we don't always get when we just see the sentence pasted there. Verse 14, he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places I've banished you and will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. If you're a 40-year-old in Babylon reading this, you're like, yes, I'm going to go home. But in 70 years means I'm not going to go home. You've got to realize when he's talking about you, his perspective of his people is so much larger. He has a, he has a bigger uh, understanding of what he's doing with his people and he's not limited by the length of our lives and neither are we thanks to the gospel that's why jeremiah reminds them in the last section a heavy section a difficult section be careful who you listen to the desire is there especially when the hope and the future seem so far away to find voices that have better promises more immediate Verse 15, you may say the Lord's raised up prophets for us in Babylon. We've got these people that are, are saying we're going back home. But here's the bottom line. And then he begins to walk through what's going to happen to Jerusalem over the next 11 years. What's going to happen to the prophets that are saying this isn't going to happen. And he says the issue is clear. You can listen to their words. Or like he says in verse 20, hear the word of the Lord. You can listen to them or you can listen to me. We have a tendency to hear what we want to hear. When, if we want things to get better, we're drawn to the people who say they're going to get better. And Jeremiah's letter says, be careful who you listen to. Make sure that what they are saying and what we are saying is actually the word of God and not just something that we want to hear. And that's what I want to do as we try to wrap up. I want to, I want to try to actually humbly, I don't know if, but speak the word of God out of this text for how we live today. Because you see, yesterday's letter speaks to today. This letter from all these years ago, this letter to them is also a letter to us. Because we live in an exile today. We live separated from, from hope and future, the future that we want, the, king, the, the full coming of the kingdom. And God's words through Jeremiah to these people 2,500 years ago have a strong resonance with what he's saying to us today. I always come back to this, almost always at the beginning of the application section, Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us 
so that through the endurance taught in the, taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. This letter speaks to us. I think we can hear the word of God in this letter. I'm going to try to to draw some conclusions as we live as an exile, waiting for God to bring us into that hope and that future that that may come in our lifetime, but may not. Here's some things I would, would say you could apply to our lives today. First of all, we need to beware conclusions drawn from circumstances. We are very, very quick to interpret circumstances. We're very quick to say it's somebody's fault or to think we have a full picture of what's going on in decisions that are made and in the way things happen. But in verse 4, God makes reality very clear. I have led you there. You know, we like to try to figure it out. If it was us, we're thinking, how do we get here? What mistake? How can we get back home? We're trying to figure all those things out. We're deciding what's good and what's not. We're we're interpreting conclusions. There's a a, a great story. Uh, Max Lucado in in this... um, uh, in the eye of the storm, he tells this story about a man that owns a horse. He's a poor man. He lives in a village. He owns this beautiful white horse. Everyone wants the horse, even the king. They offer him huge amounts of money, but he says, how can I ever sell the horse? It's like my friend. How can I sell my friend? And one morning he wakes up and the horse is gone. It's not in his stable. And the people of the village come to him and they say, you old fool, we told you someone would steal your horse. We warned you, you'd be robbed. You're so poor. How could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better to have sold it. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. And now the horse is gone and you are cursed with misfortune. And the old man says, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That is really all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? The people reply, don't don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact is that your horse is gone is a curse. And he said again, all I know is the stable's empty. The horse is gone. The rest I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I cannot say. All we can see is a fragment. Who will say what comes next? Well, two weeks pass. And it turns out that the horse wasn't stolen. It just ran away to the, to the countryside. And when it came home, it brought with it 12 wild horses. And the people come to the man. They say, oh, man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. And he says, once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him. But don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You see only a fragment Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book, can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase, can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All we have is a fragment. I'm content with what I know. I'm not perturbed by what I don't. So over the next few weeks, his son set out to break the horses so they could use them and sell them. And he was thrown from one of them and broke both his legs. And guess what? The people came back. You're right, they said. You proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken his legs. And now in your old age, you have no one to help you. You you are now poorer than you ever were. And the man said, you people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. And two weeks later... Their country went off to war and all the young men in the village were conscripted to fight in the battle except for the poor man's son who had two broken legs. The people say, you were right, old man. God knows you were right. 
This proves that your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's here with you. Our sons are gone forever. And he says, it's impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this, your sons had to go to war and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. See, the point is, we often jump to conclusions based on our circumstances. We finish the sentence for God. You ever have people that finish your sentences and it drives you crazy? We do that for God all the time. We jump to the ending. We, we form this conclusion. We decide what's good and what's bad in our life. It's a story in, in John 20. You remember Mary Magdalene? She went to the tomb. And she sees that, that the body's not there. And the angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. <laughs> and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. See, Mary came and she saw the empty tomb and she just assumed. She formed a conclusion. Right? And even when she saw the man, she just assumed he's the gardener. Where did you take him? Yeah, we've got to realize we serve a God who died and rose again. There is no darkness that he cannot make light, no death that he can't bring life to. And, and let things be what they actually are and just trust God to lead you where he wants to take you. We don't have to understand everything. You don't have to form conclusions on everything. Just like you don't have to comment on everything on Facebook, please. <laughs> Sometimes that's what it means to come as a little child. You don't know. When I was a little child and I, I got in the car and rode around with my parents, I didn't need to know where we were going. I just knew they loved me and they were going to take me somewhere. But it, we, we jumped to conclusions. Be careful with that. Let God lead us to our conclusions. Second, avoid comparison to others. This is a plague in all of our lives. They look back at those in Jerusalem and they wondered, are we going back? I wish we had what they had. And comparing yourself to other people always distracts you from what God has called you to, who you are and where you are. And, and we often get distracted from what God is doing in us by comparing with others. You know, Peter and John, Peter gets reinstated and, and Jesus is kind of turning in the screws and telling him things about his life. And, and do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter just feels the pressure and he looks over at John and he says, what about him? And in John 21, 22, Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Stop comparing. Stop wondering about what's going on in other people's lives. God's called you to be you and to be faithful where you are, which is the third thing I see in this. And we, we need to focus on small faithfulness over time. Be where you are. He says, build houses Settle down, plant gardens, get married, have children, let your children get married. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the place that you are in and it may last your entire lifetime that this is what you do. You know, in North America, we have a fixation on the big and the flashy. We Canadians talk about Americans being big and flashy, but we like the big stuff too, right? We like to do good. We like to, to, be, we like to make an impact, we want our life to count in the eyes of the people around us. 
And yet here we see these people in captivity called to be faithful in Babylon of all places where there is no temple, where idol worship, pagan religion is going on all around them when the entire culture is set, setting itself against what God has for his own people. And what's interesting is God didn't say, you've got to change this, you've got to take it over, right? You need to build a new temple. You need to establish a new Jerusalem. You need to reinstitute all the things you were doing back in Jerusalem, the sacrificial system. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, pray for the peace and the prosperity of those people around you. Let me just ask you this question. How would our world be different if Christians were less outraged about all the ways the world was against us and more focused on small acts of faithfulness right where they are? How would hope be different if we spent less time complaining about how the world's coming against Christians and more time being faithful in small ways right here where we are? You see, sometimes our outrage and our concern feels like we're doing something. We get mad and we talk about it and can you believe this and I can't believe that and and it feels like we're actually doing something. We're not doing anything. We're called to act in ways that reflect Jesus to the world around us, regardless of how effective or how visible it seems. For me, this is really stupid and silly, and I debated even mentioning it, but you know what it is for me? It's coaching basketball. I had this idea when I first started that, you know, maybe I could create a good team and people would be drawn to that and we'd see how good the basketball team was. And they would think, wow, there must be something cool about that pastor guy. Maybe I should check out his church. And it's just so silly that that was ever in my head. Because we're not, we've never been a great team. We're getting better. But I'm, I'm realizing that what's happened over the 12 years that I've coached basketball is this small little investments in the lives of people and families. And it, and it shaped me. It's changed me. Small acts of faithfulness over time. Luke writes, Jesus saying, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. But whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. We've, we've got to focus on these small acts of faithfulness right where we are. Jesus, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The most demeaning task I've done for you, he says. What small acts of faithfulness is God calling you to this week? I didn't plan it this way, but if you've seen the video for the practice this week, it's acts of service. What small acts is God calling you to do? Can you focus in on those and then entrust God with the big picture? Entrust God with the big picture. This is such a biblical idea in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph sold off into slavery by his brothers and at the end of, their, end of the, the, the whole story, right in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says to his brother, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, that, that's the story of scripture that God is doing something bigger. Paul in prison in Rome writing to the Philippians in Philippians 1.12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. See, this trust enables us. This, this what, what's happened to me, God's actually using, even if it looks like me being in jail. 
It enables us to focus on the small faithfulness where we are, knowing that God will take care of the big issues. I, I said in a video this week, this idea of a divine conspiracy. You know, so many people are wrapped up in conspiracy. All these things that are happening behind the scenes to, to squash the church or to, to eliminate our freedoms or whatever it may be. What if, what if we were people of the divine conspiracy that said it doesn't matter what we see. We realize that God is doing something underneath all this. That the bigger purposes are His and that He's going to accomplish what He wants. What if we were always aware that no matter what it looks like around us, that God is at work behind the scenes and He will not fail? 2 Corinthians 4.18 So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. How do you fix your eyes on what is unseen? You entrust God with the big details. And I keep coming back. There's this other verse that's Pinterest friendly or everywhere you see. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. See, this is the key. We spend so much time trying to figure out all the details. We spend so much time wondering about others and their role or their position. And what God says is focus on serving faithfully in small ways over the long haul and entrust the big, big details to me. And finally, this is where we'll end. Make sure to choose your advisors wisely. You know, there are other voices out there. And they will constantly seek to distract you from living as an agent of Jesus, as a part of the body of Christ right here and right now. And they'll get you fired up. <laughs> and you will feel like you're doing something really important. But what if the call is to settle in and build houses and plant gardens and work and pray for the peace and the prosperity of the place where you currently are? What if, it's, what if you're called to act as an agent of Christ in very small ways each day by loving your neighbor, by serving, by encouraging that person in the coffee shop, by sacrificing your own agenda to surrender to what God might be doing that's bigger than you? How can we know? How can we know for choosing wise advisors? Well, you know, the scripture says in, in Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, that by their fruit, you will recognize them. Look around you. The, look at the voices that have the most sway in your life, the people that you listen to, the media that you listen to on a consistent basis. And then, then say, are they cultivating in me the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all that? Or are they cultivating fear and anger? Are they leading me to be more like Jesus or less like Jesus? And I, I'm just going to wade right in here. The pandemic is the perfect example for you to flesh this out. We all want it to be over. We all want it, life to be back to normal. We want to have people, we want to come together on Sunday morning and be with each other. But the call, the call is to live faithfully in the middle of where we are instead of being afraid that somehow this is limiting God. 
and, and to make sure that the voices we listen to help us grow into Christ-likeness and help us demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. See, are, are we willing to evaluate? When, 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 when you're, I tell you when I can tell, when I feel upset, when I'm really angry, when I just can't stop talking, because that's when I need to think, what is going on in me? Am I afraid I'm losing something? Am I afraid something's being taken away from me? And, and often, have you ever read, there, there's a couple of Bible verses that say, do not fear. <laughs> if I'm afraid, then, then I'm going down the wrong path. Can I live in Babylon and build my house and plant my garden and live in a faithful way right here, right now, that cultivates not fear in me, but trust? that says to the world around me that, that I know who's guiding this. You know what? I was thinking about that this morning, and I, I'm almost, well, let's just, I'll be very blunt. At my funeral, I'm not scheduling it anytime soon. Hopefully it'll be a while from now. But my greatest hope for my funeral is not that somebody says, stands up and says, you know, the pandemic in 2020, he understood what was really going on. He was right about everything he said during the pandemic. <laughs> really? I don't give a rip about that. I, I, I don't care if I'm wrong about every single thing. But if people stand up at my funeral and say, during that time, he lived like Christ. He reflected the character of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit was evident in his life. He, he lived with joy despite difficulty. That, that's what we need to be striving toward people. Somehow we've gotten confused and we're, we're sitting in this Babylon and we're thinking that we have to be right and we have to win and we have to, to reinstate everything the way we think it should be instead of building houses, settling down, praying for the peace and prosperity of the city that we're called to and entrusting these big details to God, letting it cultivate the, the fruit of the Spirit in us because you know what? The exile was for the people. God shaped the, the Jewish people through this time in ways that, that only happened through 70 years in exile. And very often with us, we need to be shaped. We're so busy trying to shape the world that we're not even letting the Spirit of God shape us. Are we willing to live faithfully in Babylon for the long haul? Are we willing to trust that God has a hope and a future for His people, one that can never be taken away, even if we don't with these physical eyes get to see it come to pass? See, that, that's what faith looks like. And that's what we're called to. Let's pray. God, we want to be faithful. We, and, and we live in Babylon. There's no doubt that this world is, is built on principles that totally go the opposite direction of what you've called us to. And, and we do care about things. We are passionate about things. We want justice. We want healing. We want, we want things to be changed in a way that are better. But God, I just pray that you would help us discern the right voices to listen to. Help us to, to hear the voice of your Spirit as you call us to act in ways, small ways, empowered by your Spirit, that bring about changes in deep and profound ways that we can't even imagine. Help us when we feel powerless to realize that that we are, <laughs> that we always have been, and that apart from you, we always will be. 
Help us to surrender our control and be willing to live right where you've brought us, to not try to run away mentally or emotionally, but to be faithful to offer our lives to you in small acts of faithfulness over time. And God, we ask that you would show us that hope and that future, that you would help us as we seek you to find you. Help us to search for you with all our heart. God, we want that. But allow us the the freedom to let you do your work in your way on your timetable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul wrote the book of Philippians from jail. He was in prison. And uh, in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, (laughs) I was tempted to say he wrote this. Hey guys, I'm in jail. This isn't fair. Conditions aren't good and I've not done anything wrong and you really need to try to get me out of here because this is just unfair. But that's not what he writes in Philippians 4. Paul in prison says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As you live this week, as you go out into the world and you're going to engage lots of different scenarios and lots of different conversations, and I want you to pay attention to what's going on inside of you and ask yourself, is this, am I rejoicing in the Lord? Am I trusting that He is here? Am I presenting my request to Him? And am I letting the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, flow into my life so that it can flow out into the interactions I have with other people? That's my hope and my prayer for you this week, that you can live with the same peace that Paul lived with in prison as we walk around in this Babylon that we live in in the coming week. Amen.